0: You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now, on to the show.
1: As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B.
0: hello and welcome to red rum blonde this is a true crime podcast each week i'll explore a case the victims the facts and the mystery surrounding it some are solved some remain unsolved i'm your host aaron fleming When Mary Fager returned from a trip to see relatives, I doubt she expected to come home and find her immediate family slaughtered. Then, to make matters worse, she would receive a sick, taunting letter from one of America's worst serial killers. This is the story of the Fager family. Mary Fager was returning from an out-of-town trip to see relatives in Emporia, Kansas. Her home was at 7105 East 14th Street in Wichita, Kansas. And investigating this case, I was able to see the home and the surrounding neighborhood on Google Maps. It just looks like a quiet community on a tree-lined street. The lawns are well manicured in a keeping up with the Joneses kind of way. And the slightly affluent home is sandwiched between other homes on each side and across the small street. You can totally envision kids riding their bikes or fathers watering the lawns or moms tending to the flower beds. Never in a million years would you think it would be the site of a family massacre. I think when most of us think of Kansas, we get lost in scenes of the Wizard of Oz, the flat, rolling plains. Wichita did begin as a trading post in the 1860s, but has since become the largest city in Kansas. There's a metropolitan area at its core that's surrounded by suburbs so it's not as cowtown as you might think it is. The story all takes place on December 31st of 1987. Like I said, Mary had been to Emporia for a few days to see relatives. When she unlocked the front door to her home, the first thing she saw was her husband, 37-year-old Philip on the floor. The accountant at Boeing military company had been shot twice. His feet were pointed towards the door, and he was lying on his back. So it was apparent that he'd either been planning to leave, or he had just arrived home because he was still wearing his coat. So in a total panic, Mary ran across the street for help. Luckily for her, she noticed the family car was gone, and she gained some sense of relief to think that her daughters must have been somewhere and escaped what befell their father, who was dead on the floor. When she was taken to the police station to be interviewed, she was in shock. She had no idea who would want to hurt her husband, because they were just a regular family. And families like hers don't even have enemies. So in her mind, it had to have been some kind of botched robbery. To provide comfort, Mary's parents arrived at the station from Emporia, and Mary would soon need it. She found out that her daughters weren't out in the family car but they too had been at home and found dead. Both daughters had been found in the basement's hot tub, covered by the lid. Nine-year-old Sherry was a third grader at Jefferson Elementary School. She was found still in her pajamas, bound with electrician's tape, and then strangled. And her 16-year-old sister, Kelly, a senior at Southeast High School, was not bound like her sister but she was found nude and had apparently also died from drowning. And I read different accounts and the details on the story always varied. Quite a few had the ages of the sisters switched, but in the majority they had Sherry as the nine year old and Kelly as the older one. And then some referred to Philip as Melvin or Philip Melvin. So I'm just assuming that Melvin was his middle name. An autopsy was performed by Sedgwick County Coroner Robert Daniels. He concluded that Philip had been shot at very close range with a pistol. And the eldest daughter, Kelly, had no marks on her body. Her cause of death was from drowning. The youngest girl, Sherry, had been strangled with one half inch black electrician's tape. And she was bound with that same tape and then placed in the 92 degree hot tub. The coroner said she most likely had just a wisp of life left in her and had actually died from drowning just like her sister. The whole family had been dead for at least 24 to 36 hours. He said the girls had simmered for hours. It was an absolute sickening crime. The last person to see the family alive was contractor William or Bill Butterworth. And Bill was well known to the family. Having recently installed a sunroom, He had the keys to the family's home because he was still working on it, but he was nowhere to be found. So police didn't know at this point if he was a suspect or a possible missing person. There was no sign of forced entry, and police also wondered if he might have the family car which was missing, a gray 1983 Volkswagen Rabbit. A few days later, his van was found a few blocks away. But a search of the vehicle didn't provide any clues to the mystery. His wife, Shelley reported him missing on the day of the deaths. When Bill made a phone call home, she was extremely relieved to hear from him. There was another relative with her at the time of the call, and that person made a call to the police. So they traced everything to Stewart, Florida. Authorities there were notified, and the 33-year-old was arrested near the phone booth where he made the call home. And he was standing right next to the gray Volkswagen with the keys in his pocket. So, what was the story with Bill Butterworth? Sadly, he wasn't able to provide any information. He claims to have arrived at the Fager home, he found Philip's body, and then he said he heard noises in the house. So, terrified, he ran from the home, grabbing the keys as he went. And from there, he said he went to like a fugue-like state and claimed not to remember anything after that. He didn't recall stopping by to buy clothes or to empty out his bank account, and police were baffled. Butterworth had no criminal record, and he was a family man. He was a father of three. He had a three-year-old and six-month-old twins, and people described him as the type of guy that would give you his shirt off his back not someone capable of committing such an atrocious crime. And plus, there was no motive for him to kill the Fagers. So the police wondered if they had their suspect. And then they were totally thrown for a loop. Mary received a letter in January, which would make many wonder about who committed the crime. It contained an illustration of a woman who was bound and lying next to a tub, in the letter, the person claims to be very pleased with the murders, but said they didn't commit them. It also contained a poem written in all capital letters, a part of which reads, O oh God, he put Kelly, Sherry, in the tub, another one prowled the deep abyss of lewd thoughts and deeds, and while he built the spiritual and tension-washing reel. So in it, the writer compared the murders to an Aztec human sacrifice. And there was a strange logo down in the corner, and it was signed BTK. Now, most of you probably know exactly who this letter writer was, but for those of you who don't, and even if you do know the case, I'm going to go and talk about the killer since it seems very relevant. So BTK stands for Bind, Torture, and Kill and was used as a moniker by Dennis Rader. And at this time, he was an active serial killer. His crimes began in 1974. Rader was born in Pittsburgh, Kansas, but he grew up in Wichita. And like many serial killers, he was known to have taken pleasure in torturing small animals. From 1966 to 1970, he was enlisted in the Air Force. And then, after serving, he worked in the meat department at an IGA supermarket in nearby Park City. In 1971, he married Paula Dietz, and they went on to have two children. Rader furthered his education by getting an associate degree in electronics, and then graduating from Wichita State University with a bachelor's in administration of justice, and that was in 1979. And from there, he held a variety of jobs. One was installing security alarms for ADT security services. And this is a spoiler alert. Probably the creepiest part of the Netflix series Mindhunter shows him performing this job in a very eerie foreshadowing. He also worked as a census taker. Both jobs that allowed him access to homes and information about the inhabitants. One other job he held was a dog catcher and many described him when he was doing this job as oddly enthusiastic about catching dogs and euthanizing them. He led a double life. To the community, he was a father, a husband, churchgoer, and a Cub Scout leader. But in secret, he was committing heinous crimes. His first murders occurred on January 15th of 1974. The Otera family were strangled to death in their own home. The victims were parents 38-year-old Joseph and his wife 33-year-old Julie, their children 11-year-old Josephine and Joseph Jr. who was only 9. He confronted the family via the garage with a knife and a 22 caliber handgun. It was very early in the morning and the kids were still getting ready for school. He led them all to think that it was just a robbery and to not be afraid. And then after coercing them to put the family dog outside, he bound their hands behind their backs and he led them all into a bedroom. And from there, he put plastic bags over the father and the son's heads and then put ropes around them. And Julie begged for her, for him to release them. But he ended up strangling both father and son. And then he put a bag over her head and began strangling her with a rope. And little Josephine was the last to suffer the same. She was alive when he brought her down to the basement. And then after removing her clothes, he put a rope around her neck. And he hung her from a pipe, telling her that she'd be in heaven tonight. He left behind semen evidence at the scene. And sadly, the family was discovered later by their 15-year-old son, Charlie. A few months passed before he struck again. On April 4th of 1974, he hid inside the apartment of Catherine Bright. Rader entered through a porch door and hid in the bedroom. He'd actually been watching the 21-year-old for some time. She arrived home around 2 p.m. with her 19-year-old brother, Kevin. Rader rushed out wearing a stocking cap and gloves and pointing a gun at them. And he said he needed a car, money, and food because he was a wanted criminal. So after forcing them to the bedroom, he made Kevin bind his sister's hands and feet. And then Kevin was taken into another room and bound, but not successfully. From there, they fought with Kevin almost getting the gun away from Raider. Unfortunately, Raider regained control and he shot Kevin in the head twice. When he then turned his attention to Catherine, he tried to strangle her, but he realized it wasn't an easy job, so he proceeded to just stab her in the stomach. Kevin somehow survived his injuries, but his sister later died at the hospital. In October, he left a letter in a library book, claiming responsibility for the murders of the Ateros. In it, he said he was a, quote, psychotic with sexual perversion hangups, and then he gave himself the moniker BTK, saying that he would kill again. The code words for me will be, bind them, torture them, kill them, BTK. The terror seemed to cease until March 17th of 1977. A well-dressed man knocked on a door and asked a little boy if his parents were home five-year-old Steve Relford unwittingly let this killer into his home, saying his mom was sick in bed. Once inside, the man turned off the TV and closed the blinds. He'd had a gun. And then when little Steve began to cry, Rader locked him and his two siblings in the bathroom. And from there, he took their mother, 26-year-old Shirley Vianne, and bound and strangled her. Steve remembers seeing quote, My mother laying face down with a plastic bag over her head, a rope tied around her neck, all the fingers in her hand broken, and her hands taped behind her back. And he's still haunted by that image to this day. And there seems to be some months of inactivity for Rader. His next attack would occur on December 8th of 1977, he had stalked for some time before seeing this woman walk into her home. Not only did he know where she lived, but he knew her name, which was Nancy Fox and where she worked. He'd even been through her mail. His method was very precise and this kill was completely planned. So that day he parked a few blocks from her home and then he broke into her home and he cut the phone lines. So after Nancy arrived home from her night job at a jewelry store, Rader surprised her in the kitchen with a gun, telling her he had a, quote, sexual issue. He explained that he needed to tie her up and to rape her to get rid of it. So Nancy nervously smoked a cigarette as he rummaged through her purse. Then she pleaded with him to just get it over with. In her mind, I think she thought he was just going to tie her up, and rape her, and then leave. So he let her into the bathroom, and he let her disrobe there in private. And when she came out, he ordered her into the bedroom, where he then tied her up and began strangling her. And like his first murder, he left semen evidence that would then come back to haunt him. But this time he called the police, notifying them of the homicide of Nancy Fox. And when police arrived at the residence, they found her lying on her bed with her feet and hands bound with nylon stockings. And even though Raider had insinuated to her that he was going to leave after binding her, he lied because Nancy had been strangled. to
3: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.
2: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
3: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new
0: customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Death. Raider was a real braggart, and he couldn't just live with killing people. He had to let the world know. Shortly after killing Nancy Fox. He sent a letter to a local television station, claiming responsibility for the killing of Nancy, Shirley, and another victim. In it, he said, How many do I have to kill before I get a name in the paper or some national attention? So now the police had two letters and a phone recording, but they weren't anywhere close to finding his identity. The next attempt on a victim resulted in a surprising ending. He entered the home of an elderly woman in April of 1979, but he left without incident. And although he didn't harm her, he made sure to send a letter to her letting her know that he'd been inside her home. Police publicly released the tape of his phone call, hoping somebody would recognize his voice. So you have to remember, all this time, he was leading a total double life. He was married with two kids, and he was working But in his free time, he was murdering and fulfilling his sick fantasies. Many years passed without incident. Things stayed quiet until April 27th, 1985. And this one was close to home, literally. He killed his neighbor, 53-year-old Maureen Hedge. She lived just down the street from him. And like some of his other victims, she was maliciously stalked. He watched her come and go many times. He probably even went through her mail like he did with Nancy Fox. On this day, Raider parked at a nearby bowling alley, and he even dressed the part of a bowler. But instead of going to the bowling alley, he called a taxi. With his bowling bag, he carried his, quote, kill kit. And feigning drunkenness, he asked the taxi driver to let him out for some fresh air. Conveniently, he was right by Marine Hedges' residence. And he was a bit alarmed because he saw her car in the driveway. But when he crept into her home, he realized she wasn't there. A few moments later, he heard the door rattle and she arrived home with a man. And that's when he snuck and hid. After uh, she talked for a while with this man, he left. But then Raider kept hidden all night until early morning. And sneaking back into the bedroom, he threw on the lights in her bathroom, which woke her up and caused her to scream. And she had to have recognized him from the neighborhood. Unlike many of the other attacks, this time, he didn't disguise himself in any way. And he quickly strangled her with just his bare hands. And afterward, to fulfill his fantasies, he stripped her of her clothing and he took some trophy items from her purse. But instead of leaving the body, as he did in the other cases, he decided to remove her from her home. He managed to get her to the trunk of his own car, and from there he drove to Christ Lutheran Church, where he took some Polaroids of her body. And then after taking the pictures, he moved her body to a ditch and covered her with some brush. Rader later confessed to using a squeeze ball as a way to exercise and build up his hand strength. He would take his victim's underwear and proceed to wear them himself. Many of the victims he called projects. Marine Hedge was referred to as Project Cookie. It was unusual for him to kill so close to home, because he believed it wasn't good to, quote, kill in your own habitat. Marine Hedge's body was found a few days later, and once again, it was a spell before he planned anything else. The next fateful day fell on September 16th of 1986. Bill regularly was driving home on his lunch break to see his wife, Vicky and their two-year-old son, Brandon, when he passed the family car on the road. But the odd thing was his wife wasn't at the wheel. So when he got home, he saw his toddler sitting on the floor all alone. When he went upstairs to look for his wife, he found her on the bed, and she'd been strangled. Bill was suspected of killing his own wife, but luckily police never had enough evidence to charge him. He failed two polygraph tests which aroused suspicion. And even when the case grew cold, this cloud of suspicion still hung over him. The actual events would not be known until years later. Vicky had been stalked by Raider, becoming one of his projects. He called her Project Piano after passing her home one day and hearing her play. So that day, posing as a telephone repairman, he gained entry into her home. Somehow he got a Southwestern Bell telephone helmet, which he wore to look the part. Earlier in the day, Rader had gone to the other homes to inform the residents that he was working on the lines. And then knocking on Vicky's door... He asked her if he could come in and check her telephone line and see if it worked, since he was doing repairs in the neighborhood. And when he got inside, he mimicked messing with the phone. And then when she wasn't looking, he pulled out a pistol and he ordered her into the bedroom. But when he tried tying her up, she fought him like hell, scratching him on the neck. Rader was able to get a hold of nylon stockings and he began strangling her. And then after he subdued her, he arranged her body and took photos. But he became nervous after hearing some commotion. The windows in the house were all open and he was afraid of getting caught. So he rummaged through her purse. He found her keys and he took the family car. And it wasn't until later that he heard that she'd actually died from her injuries. I'm really surprised with his ego that he kept silent and let her husband take the blame. Her son, Brandon, who was left alone on that floor that day, said his family always suspected that it might have been BTK. So I want to mention that it's close to the year of the Fager murders. They occurred in 1987. So before I go back to that story, I'm going to finish up what went on with Dennis Rader. So I'm trying to establish these facts so that we can look at that case and his murders to try to see if he might have been responsible for what happened to the Fagers. Luckily, his last known victim was 60-year-old, 2-year-old Dolores Davis. And this time he used his Boy Scout troop as a cover. So while camping with his troop, he slipped away. The night was January 19th of 1991. And after changing his clothes at his parents' house, Rader drove his car to Park City leaving his car at a Baptist church. Outside Dolores's house, he waited until she he saw she was asleep. He broke the glass on a door with a cement block. And hearing the noise, Dolores came running from her bedroom. And like before, he claimed to be a wanted man needing money and a car. And like his other victims, she was tied up and strangled to death. And after placing the body In the trunk of her own car, he drove to a lake and put her under some trees. And then he drove her car back to her home, made sure to wipe everything down. Afterwards, he went back to the body, put it in his own trunk, and dumped Dolores under a bridge. He made sure to change back into a scout uniform before he returned to the camp. Before her body was discovered, he managed to go back and take photos of her. He continued following his pattern of taking a pause in the killings. At this point, he was working as a compliance supervisor for the Wichita suburb of Park City. So maybe he got enough pleasure exerting control with this job. He carried with him a tranquilizer gun to use on animals and was the authority on the heights of the citizen's lawn. So it had to appeal to the control freak and narcissist in him. In 2004, the 30th anniversary of the terror killings approached, so, of course, he couldn't stay quiet. An article on the Wichita Eagles suggested that the killer was either dead or in prison. Obviously, he felt he was more clever than the authorities, which he wasn't. His arrogance would be what tripped him up. Raider sent packages to various agencies and the media. In the packages were letters, pictures, and even a word puzzle. In 2005, Raider sent a message to a Wichita TV station about a supposed package left at Home Depot. Authorities went to Home Depot. On the case was homicide detective Ken Landwehr, and he'd been working on the BTK case for some time. And at the Home Depot, they found an employee who told them of a cereal box that had been found in the back of his truck, but not knowing what it was, it was thrown out. Luckily, they were able to locate the box in the garbage. There were details inside about some of the murders, and an odd question was posed. The letter read, Can I communicate with Floppy and not be traced to a computer? Be honest. Under miscellaneous section 494, and in parentheses it said Rex, it will be okay. Run it for a few days in case I'm out of town, etc. I will try a floppy for a test run sometime in the near future, February or March. Essentially, he wanted police to run an ad in the paper saying, Rex, it would be okay, as a signal to confirm that he could communicate via floppy disk to ensure his anonymity. And under no obligation were the police to be honest with him, so they complied. And he was so arrogant that he went along with it. Two weeks later, a TV station received a package with a floppy disk. So before modern technology that we now have, floppy disks were used to contain information on a computer, and they would have to be inserted. Now we just used hard drives or USBs. And it was literally a flimsy square, hence the name floppy disk. On the disk, it said, this is a test. An index card had instructions for further communications. The police noticed that the file had been last saved by a dentist and used at Christ Lutheran Church in a library in Park City. Because Rader's printer wasn't working at home, he used the disk at his church in the library to print the file. He, of course, didn't think it could be traced. Landwarter had the best quote about it. He said, It's pretty basic stuff. I mean, anybody who knows anything about computers could figure it out. He just called out the guy who thought he was smarter than everyone. It didn't take too much work to find his connection with the church. After getting DNA from Rader's daughter, they had enough for an arrest. And on February 25th of 2005, Rader was arrested. Landwehr was credited for lulling Rader into a false sense of security and playing on his ego to trap him. It didn't sit well at all with Rader. He was furious that he'd been lied to. And he admitted that, quote, the floppy did me in. Rader pled guilty on June 27, 2005 to 10 counts of murder. Even after confessing to Moore, there was only enough evidence to charge him for the 10. He gave details of his crimes as part of the guilty plea. And this was all before the reinstatement of the death penalty in that state, so he could only get life in prison. He was given 10 life sentences to be served at El Dorado Correctional Facility. And there he's kept in solitary confinement for his own protection. He gets one hour of exercise a day and showers three times a week. The FBI looked into other cases in surrounding states extensively but couldn't find enough to link to any other crimes. They were able to conclude that the one victim whose home he entered and left was done so because of construction in the area. So let's go back to the Fager case. Bill Butterworth had been arrested and his attorney had him overgo over 20 hypnosis sessions with clinical psychologist, Dr. Robert Pace to try to find out what he actually saw that day And then what he revealed was this. Bill said he broke for lunch after working on the sunroom. And when he came back, he saw condensation covering the glass of the sunroom. So he assumed the older girl was in there with her boyfriend in the hot tub. But he didn't actually see anyone, he just assumed they were there. So he left again, he bought some clothes at an after Christmas sale, and he met with a friend, retired police captain William Dots, who then confirmed the story. Dots said his friend was fine that day, not nervous or any way disturbed. Bill returned to the Fager home around 4.30. He figured by that time Kelly and her boyfriend would be out of the hot tub, and he could continue on his work. Entering the sunroom, he saw Sherry face down in the tub, Going through the house, he next found Philip dead in the hallway. The keys were on the floor and Bill recalls grabbing them. Bill entered his van and he fumbled around with the keys at the ignition before realizing that he was trying to use the Fager keys instead of his own. He grabbed the sack of clothes he had purchased and he took off in the Fager car. In the hypnosis session, he expressed fear and remorse for fleeing. And it was odd in his memories, he only recalls seeing Sherry in the hot tub and not Kelly. So in the next session, they focused more on the details of Sherry. This time, he says he remembers trying to get Sherry out of the tub. But before he did, he went through the house, finding Philip. When he was by Philip's body, he heard a noise, which he described as a bump. Thinking it was the family dog, he started towards the basement but then he realized it wasn't the dog, and he became afraid. He said he heard something like someone trying to cry or scream, and that's when he fled. When telling the account, he was visibly upset, crying with an elevated heart rate. He said he kept thinking about his own kids and how it could have been them. He then fled, drawing money from an automated teller. He remembers driving past his own home and wanting to stop, but instead he drove to Florida. He expressed an immense amount of guilt for thinking Kelly might have been alive and instead of helping, fleeing. The thought of possibly doing the same to his own children if the situation arose concerned him deeply, and it really bothered him that he might leave them. Butterworth was acquitted of any charges with the murders. The prosecution tried to get the sessions thrown out. A jury just couldn't convict on what little evidence was presented. Landwar was also in charge of the investigation in this case, and he said he felt the jury was presented a flawed case. Pretty much all the jury had was that he'd driven the Florida with the Fager car. And to quote the jury, the jury foreman, you can't convict a man of first-degree murder just because he drove a car. The judge refused to allow Butterworth's attorney to enter in the BTK letter that was sent to Mary Fager. I think Landworth thought Butterworth was guilty of the crime. Apparently, Bill said he'd been in and out of the Fager home about nine times that day, once jumping over the fence. However, Landworth said there wasn't any p- shoe prints in the snow to corroborate the story. And Because of the lack of evidence or any motive, nothing could be proven. So it's a true mystery, and I've been totally back on forth in where I place this guilt. Of of course, you know, William Butterworth could have done it. He had keys to the home, and he had keys to the family car. And being in the home made him very familiar with the family's routine. He could have attacked the girls and then been surprised by Philip, and that would explain why he was in the hallway. And he did empty his account, and he had a change of clothing, but then why Florida? He didn't have any connections there that anyone could find. But on the other hand, fugue states are a proven reality. And that might explain why things don't make sense like the destination of Florida. And plus hypnosis is commonly accepted and used to obtain information in a lot of cases. But the murders do fit with something Raider would have done. I mean, you think about the first crime he committed with the Otero family. In that case, his main object was the little girl. She was the fixation. He specifically targeted girls and women. And this would have completely fit with this case. If he were stalking this family, he would have known that the mother was out of town. The only problem I see for him would be Butterworth working on the house and the father. But he could have easily done away with either one of them. And if he were watching the house, he would have noticed when Bill left so he could commit the crimes. And there's the letter. Granted, he didn't claim responsibility, only saying he admired the killer. He's such an egomaniac that you think if he did it, he would take credit. And that's the only thing that in my mind gives me pause about that. Judging from what he said that in the letter and the illustration, it wasn't completely accurate to what occurred. But both the girls were bound and strangled, which was his M.O. So I really go back and forth with this. I mean, Butterworth didn't have a motive and seems to have a clean record. But Rader didn't have a record either. Just because you don't have a record only means you might not have been caught. I mean, this man could have had an alternate life just like Dennis Rader. The girls were obviously the targets, and I think the father was just collateral damage to the killer. They found semen at the scene, but it didn't match with Butterworth. I have no idea if they compared it to Rader or not. But also having the lead detective, detective having worked both cases, and him not seeing a connection is odd too. Seriously, I have no idea who this killer might have been. And I'd love to know everyone's thoughts on the case. It's a true mystery. And that was the case of the Fager murders. Find me on social media and give me your thoughts on this case, who you think the killer was. There's a Red Run Blonde Facebook group and a Facebook page. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. So my big news for the podcast is that we've joined Acast. I was previously hosted on SoundCloud, and I'm super excited to be on Acast. They're really up and coming, and I think they're the next big thing. So please check me out there and subscribe. I'm still on iTunes and other forums, and they're still on SoundCloud, but you can only find the newer episodes. To get all of the episodes, look at Acast. You can find them all there. And I'm super excited to say I've hit over 20,000 listens. To me, it's an absolute miracle. Thank you to everyone who has tuned in and listened. Really, thank you so much. It's truly a dream come true. So thank you, everyone, for listening, and I'll catch you next week.
1: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.